Today we're going to look at Psalm 3. And this is what the word of the Lord says. Let me actually read the title, which is not in the bulletin. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? <clears throat> many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for a brief moment. God, we thank you that you give us your word, and uh, just as we spend time here dwelling upon what you have to say to us, especially through the words of David in this psalm, we ask that your spirit would be our, uh, our power to open our eyes not only to see truth, but to feel in it, to experience the beauty of it, to soak it in, to be changed and transformed by it, to be refreshed and renewed in our hearts by it. We know that your word is precious. It's like a treasure. Uh, <coughs> as the psalmist always says, and something to delight in. So help us to delight in your word in this time right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I just started. My voice feels like it's going. <laughs> well, as I've said before, uh, you know, I've been away for a couple weeks, and so we haven't really talked about fear for the last two weeks, but... Uh, we're going to return to talking about fear, and I think for the next couple of weeks specifically, and you can see on the sermon schedule, what I wanted to do is I wanted to look at what some of the Psalms specifically have to say about fear. And the reason why I want to look at some of the Psalms is because uh, when we go through experiences of intense fear, <coughs> I want us to have something tangible uh, to use. And the Psalms are <coughs> a very... Uh, the Psalms are, I think, a very uh, useful tool to use whenever we're going through an experience of fear. Now, I think there's a lot of things that you can do with the Psalms that can help you spiritually. Uh, if you feel so inclined, you can memorize some of the Psalms, and I think memorizing Scripture is something that can always help. You can even pray the Psalms, and so if you uh, are in a time of prayer, you just open up your Bible, and you pray through some of the song things that the Psalm is talking about, or... Uh, if you feel so inclined. One of the things that you can do that I find is a helpful exercise is you take one of the psalms and you try to paraphrase it in your own words. And the psalms are really a powerful resource to use to help you in your prayer life and your devotional life. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at a couple of the psalms that speak about fear, that speak to this issue of fear, just so we have something tangible that we can use anytime we are going through uh, some kind of bout with fear or anxiety. Now, here's the main reason why I decided to choose this psalm is that it talks about sleep. And uh, sleep is so important. And you see it in verse 5 when David says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And upon first reading, maybe it's not something that hits you as being something dramatic or spiritually important. But if you're somebody who's ever had this intense bout with anxiety, then you know that one of the hardest things to do in those moments is to lay down and go to sleep. 
right? Maybe you've been there. You feel like the world is spinning out of control. Maybe you feel like you're being attacked from all angles. Maybe that attack is coming from people at work or colleagues at work or bosses at work. Maybe it's even coming from within your own family. But either way, you are left to be very shaken and things you feel like in your life have gotten very unstable. And whereas you used to think you knew where your future was headed, you used to think you knew uh, where your security lied, where your comfort lied, something in your life has suddenly shaken that up. And when that gets shaken up, the first thing to go, I think, can be sleep. Now, you want to sleep, but you can't sleep because your, your mind is just constantly racing. How can I take control of the situation? What can I do to protect myself? How can I forge a better path forward? And these thoughts start to run through your mind, don't they? And... and when you can't sleep, it takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on your body, it takes a toll on your mood. You need sleep, but you can't sleep, and what ends up happening is you start to get a little bit stressed about the fact that you're not sleeping, and uh, you're like, I have to sleep, I have to sleep, and that just becomes one more thought that races through your mind. How do I get to sleep? You get stuck in this perpetual cycle, and when you can't sleep, your mood changes, your productivity decreases, you don't feel like yourself. You start to stress out because maybe you're not being the kind of person that you once were and uh, for those who depend upon you. And I'm not even talking about the kind of generalized anxiety disorders that people face that can be very debilitating or intense, but I'm simply talking about the kind of anxiety that I think most people will experience at least once or twice in the course of their lives. It could revolve around something like a big decision that you have to make. It could revolve around... Uh, maybe a change of circumstance. Maybe it's a broken relationship. It's a kind of anxiety that disrupts your life and sets into motion a set of intense experiences related to fear and anxiety. But what if there was a way one could actually lay down and sleep in the midst of all this chaos that's happening in your life? Then it's something I think we'd want to pay attention to. What allows a person to feel enough peace in their heart that they can sleep and get some rest. And that's why I want to look at this psalm because we see here that David is able to sleep. Now this is one of the few psalms, it, it gives us the historical circumstance. It tells us what's going on when this psalm was written. And the title of the psalm says, it's the psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now if you're not familiar with some of the stories that are found in the Bible or the Old Testament, uh, you know, I think the, the story of Samuel Kings, it's a little bit like the game, like game of Thrones. I think uh, the new season of Game of Thrones is coming out. I don't watch that show, so I don't exactly know uh, what happens in it. But uh, the Bible is filled with all this drama, this political drama, this family drama. And you know, one of the most famous stories in the life of David is a story where he sees Bathsheba bathing upon a roof and he says, I have to have her, and he ends up sleeping with her. But the problem is Bathsheba is married to another man. This man's name is Uriah, and Uriah is faithfully fighting David's war or David's battle. And so what David does after he sleeps with Bathsheba, he uh, has Uriah sent to the front lines, the place where there's a higher probability of being killed, and Uriah ends up getting killed in war. Now, that's pretty messed up for anybody to do, especially a king like David. Nathan the prophet, he confronts David, he confronts his sin, and he says, you are that man, right? You are the man who uh, sinned. And that event, the reason why I'm pointing out that event, that event would be so significant because it would have repercussions, and that event would reverberate throughout the rest of David's life. Uh, Nathan the prophet 
would give David a word from the Lord. And this is what Nathan says to David. He says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Now, according to this prophecy, all of the family drama that takes place within David's household is because of David's sin. It's because of what he did with Uriah in terms of having Uriah killed. And so what ends up happening is David's firstborn, Amnon, he falls in love with Tamar, his half-sister. And essentially, he sexually violates her. He ends up raping her. Tamar's brother is Absalom, and Absalom gets very angry with Amnon. And what he eventually does is he, he kills him. And David is not pleased with because Absalom kills Amnon, and so Absalom flees for several years. Uh, you can't make this stuff up, right? This is kind of actually worse than Game of Thrones. <laughs> this is terrible stuff in David's household. Now, eventually, David receives Absalom back, and when Absalom comes back, you know what he does? He conspires against David, and he says, I am going to take your throne. And so Absalom, his son, tries to kill David so that he can take his throne, and during the course of that time, Absalom's uh, is counseled to sleep with David's concubines, and that ultimately fulfills uh, the third part of Nathan's prophecy. Now, if you think of, if you think you have a dysfunctional family, uh, it does not compare to David's family, right? This psalm <clears throat> is to be understood in the midst of that entire episode, everything that's going on with Absalom. Now, I don't think many of us will relate to the entirety of the situation, but I do think there are aspects of what is going on here that we can probably relate to. I think some of us know what it's like to feel attacked, right? Maybe someone at work is slandering your character, gossiping about you behind your back. Maybe that person has gotten all of your colleagues to turn against you. Maybe it's your friends or people within your social community who is judging you for doing certain things. Uh, sometimes church communities can be like that too, right? Rather than being a place of refuge, sometimes church communities can be also feel like a place where you are being judged and attacked. And so you see, even though the circumstances are a little bit different, I think all of us probably can relate to what it's like to feel like you're being attacked, to feel like you're being mocked. And that's what David is saying in these first two verses. He is saying, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And so what does David do here? Well, you begin to see a shift in verses 3 and 4. And uh, whereas in the first two verses, he's focused on his enemies, in verses 3 and 4, his focus shifts upon who God is. There's this preacher named James Boyce. And he says, you know, when you gaze upon your enemy for too long, uh, they seem to grow in size uh, until they appear to be overwhelming. And I think that's actually a very insightful uh, thing that he says that he mentions you know when we focus on what our enemies can do to us when we focus on those who attack us what they are able to do to us usually what happens is it stokes our imagination right and we begin to see them as much more powerful than they really are uh, if you have people at work who are turning against you and you just constantly are thinking about them and what they can do to you and your imagination goes wild all right, you, they, they start suddenly become like this big and they can ruin your lives. If you remember the first sermon in this series, we looked at a passage in Numbers when Israel sent out two spies to the land of Canaan. And what did the spies report? He said the, the people in the land are large. The cities are fortified. And the entire community weeps and they have this collective emotional breakdown. 
And you see, David, he could have probably done the same thing and made the same mistake here and focused on all the thousands of people who were against him and who were trying to kill him. But in this psalm, at least, he doesn't do that. In verses 3 and 4, he shifts that perspective and he begins to look to the Lord. And by doing so, he starts to get filled with this kind of confidence. Now, in movies, I love the scenes where you, you see like a character struggling throughout the movie, but then there is this like dramatic turning point uh, where they start to build confidence. Uh, I just came back from Asia, which means I spent a lot of time uh, on the airplane, and on the airplane they played, uh, they had a couple of the newer movies. They had Creed Two, right? And in Creed Two, there's a scene where uh, the main character, you know, he's struggling. Uh, uh, you know, if you, saw, if you didn't watch it, I don't want to ruin the movie for you, but, you know, it's basically all the Rocky movies uh, repeated. <laughs> so the, the character is struggling, and then uh, at some point he starts to gain confidence when he's training, and you hear like the pump-up music going on in the back, and you're like, yeah, right? He's building some confidence. There's this turning point. This, yeah, there's also another movie that uh, I was telling Jen. I, I know you, you don't think you'll like it, but it's such a good movie, and it's, uh, it's a Spider-Man animated movie. That was playing on the plane, too. That movie is so... I recommend it, even if you're not a fan of, like, animation or Spider-Man. This is a really good movie. But the main character in that movie, too, discovers, right, he's struggling, he's weak, he doesn't have courage, he doesn't have confidence, and then all of a sudden, there is this turning point. And after something dramatic happens to him, he begins to be able to face his fear, and he becomes this confident Spider-Man. And likewise, uh, as Creed Two, you start to hear like some pump-up music in the background, and it you know really builds you up. I I love when that kind of thing happens to characters in movies, and it just it just makes you feel good inside, right? If there was going to be some kind of music accompaniment to this psalm, starting at verses 3 and 4, you'd start to hear the pump-up music, right? <laughs> this, is, uh, this is where David is starting to feel a little bit more confident. But here is a difference, and this is a significant difference. You know, whereas uh, in these movies, oftentimes confidence is found within themselves, right? Here, David draws his confidence not from within, but from above. He draws his confidence from the Lord when he looks to the Lord. And specifically, there are three aspects here that I want to point out in terms of how David draws his confidence from the Lord. The first thing we see here is David says that the Lord is his shield. The Lord's his shield. Now, this is the only imagery that we find in this psalm, but I think it's a powerful one. You know, a shield is something that is designed to protect you, but there are different kinds of shields in the ancient wor world. And uh, they would be used for different occasions. Some, some shields were kind of like the round shields that you, you have on your arm. And, uh, you know, it wasn't too big, so it made it easier to, like, run, to block, and to attack, and things like that. But that's not the kind of shield that is described here, because the shield that is described here is one that is about you. Or in the NIV translation, one that is actually around you. Uh, these shields are quite large. They are convex in shape. And they would give soldiers the maximal amount of protection. And these shields were designed to make it, uh, they weren't designed to make it easy to run away because they're so large. These shields are actually designed to protect you as you enter into danger, to protect you in the midst of danger. You see, that is what David is saying about God. God is a shield about him, and not necessarily will God take you away from danger, but God will be your protection as you walk into danger and you are in the midst of danger. That's how God is. That's the kind of shield God is. And isn't that the kind of shield that we all need? We need a shield that actually helps us face danger. 
we could run away from the things that give us anxiety, and that's a common response of all humans. But you know, if we run away from the things that scare us, then we won't grow and we won't be able to overcome our fears and our anxiety. But when you get so debilitated by fear, the question everybody's going to have is how do you face it? How do you face it? David's answer, you face it when you realize that God is a shield about you. I think a lot of what makes us dysfunctional as people is actually our inability to face our fears head on. Uh, If you have uh, a fear of maybe emotional intimacy, you might be running away from maybe a past pain or past trauma. If you have a problem with passive aggressiveness, it could be because you're afraid of confrontation. Um, My suspicion is that most dysfunctional relationships never experience healing and reconciliation because people are probably too afraid of doing all the hard work that is required to get to that point because that requires confronting sin, confronting uh, your wrongs, confronting pains. And we can be so afraid of that that it's just easier to run away from the relationship than to face it head on. But you see, the more we run, the more dysfunctional we'll become, the more our growth gets stunted. And sometimes growth comes, actually oftentimes growth comes not by running away from our fears, but actually facing them and walking in the midst of what we perceive to be danger. How do we do that? Recognize God is our shield. Second, David says this, God is my glory. My glory. Now the Hebrew word kavod for glory Uh, It it means uh, weightiness or heaviness. And when David says, the Lord is my glory, basically what he is saying is this, that God is the one who gives me my significance. Uh, And I think that's an important realization for somebody like David because where is he? He's on the verge of losing his throne. How humiliating for a king to lose his throne and to lose his throne to a rebellious son named Absalom. And so, you know, it's very possible that his fears are driven by a sense of self-glory or self-preservation. And I think that's the origin of many of our fears as well. If we're worried about failure, about losing a job, about getting rejected, about looking bad, about confessing our sin, about having too little money, whatever it is that we're afraid of, there's a good chance that we're afraid of these things because we have attached our significance to them. They have become our glory. But when David looks to God and says, God, you are my glory, not my throne, not my uh, success as a parent and raising up kids who won't rebel against me, but you alone are my glory, I think it gives him a sense of freedom. It frees him from not finding glory in some of these other things. You know, if I locate my glory in how intelligent I I am, uh, you know who's going to scare me? really intelligent people because they're going to be able to uh, expose my stupidity, right? Uh, If I locate my glory in maybe my physical appearance and how I look and whether I'm good-looking, well, guess what? Really good-looking people are going to scare me because they're going to make me feel ugly, right? The only way that you really find freedom from that kind of fear, you got to locate your glory in the Lord. The third thing David says, He says, the Lord is the lifter of his head. Now, this is an idea, I think, related to glory, but I think it does take it a step further because before 
glory was about who God is, but here when God lifts David's head, uh, it has to do with this concept of honor and shame. Someone who feels shame, what do they do? Right? You, you bow your head because you feel ashamed. <laughs> That's something I think instinctual. That's something you actually see in children a lot when you're uh, disciplining them, right? And they feel embarrassed about something bad that they did. They usually right, bow their head in shame. Uh, that's, that's a, a physical uh, expression of what we feel inside of our hearts in terms of shame. When David says God is a lifter of his head, he's saying this, God is the one who's going to bring him out of a state of shame into a place of honor. Isn't that what happens when people lift their heads? Uh, it means they have confidence. It means they feel like they have honor. Uh, I've, I think I've mentioned this in the past, but you know, clothing is important because if you have this new suit and you think you look good in it, right? you start to walk up a little bit higher maybe, or if you have a, a new dress and you uh, look good in it, right? you start to feel more confident and you hold up your head a little bit higher. And uh, I think it's a s- the same idea, except it's not a suit, it's not a dress that lifts up your head, but here it is the Lord who lifts up David's head. Now, when David reflects upon these three things, that God is shield, God is his glory, and God is the lifter of his head, it does something to him. It it brings him to a place of trust, and that trust is so deep that even in the midst of grave danger, he can go to sleep. How amazing, right? He can draw confidence from God, even though there are many thousands of people who have set themselves against him. Not only that, he is confident that God is the one who is ultimately going to protect him and destroy all of his enemies because salvation ultimately belongs to the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with David, um, I think people in the church, uh, you know, we know certain stories about David. We know David is a man after God's own heart. And uh, maybe we think David is like this amazing, good, perfect person. But then, you know, you have to balance that out with all the bad things that he did with uh, sleeping with Bathsheba, uh, with things like having Uriah killed. Uh, I guess he wasn't the greatest father because, you know, one son killed another son. Uh, One son tried to rebel against him, uh, whatever it may be. And you think you have a realistic view of David's life. And David is so confident that God is going to be his shield, that God is going to be his glory, that God is going to lift his head. And the question at least I ask is, how can David be so confident, right? It's not like David was the greatest guy in the world. Uh, It's not like David was the greatest uh, king in the world, Uh, although he did experience the most success, but God is the one who gave him that success. So why is David so confident that God wouldn't abandon him, even in spite of everything that he's done? There's this interesting place in verse 4 where David cries out to the Lord and the Lord answers him from his holy hill. Uh, David ruled from a place called Zion because it was God's chosen dwelling place and God, what he ended up doing is he sanctified the city with his presence and basically that place, Zion, represented God's promise to David. And what was God's promise to David? That I will establish the throne, your throne, and your kingdom forever. Yeah, you find that, I think it's in Second Sam, Samuel 7. Now, since David fled from Absalom, David is presumably far away from Zion, far away from his home, far away from this holy hill, and yet the Lord answers David from his holy hill. 
Why would the Lord answer him? Why? And I think the answer is pretty simple. God made a promise. God made a promise by way of covenant. And he intends to keep that promise. It's not about David's goodness. It's not about how he was successful as a king. It's simply about the fact that God entered into covenant with David and God is intent upon keeping that promise. You know, in ancient Near Eastern practices, uh, whenever a covenant would be ratified, uh, you would have this kind of ceremony. And uh, you see the ceremony in places like in Genesis 15 where they, they cut these animals in half. And the reason that they cut these animals in half, maybe it seems like very brutal to, uh, to us, but in the ancient world, the reason why they would cut these animals in half is they would say, you know, if one party uh, breaks the covenant, the terms of this covenant, may they be like these animals, right? May they be cut off. May they be cut in half. And what's really amazing about Genesis 15 is what it says is a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes between right, these, uh, these carcasses, between these pieces of animals. And in theology, that's called a theophany. Theophany basically means it's a physical manifestation of God. And uh, what, in other words, what Genesis 15 is showing us is God is the one who ultimately would walk in the midst of these dead carcasses. Now, commentators point out, they say, this is a strange thing because you wouldn't expect God to walk through these dead carcasses. And it really doesn't make sense why God would be the one to do that because he's not the one who breaks covenant why God would do that until you get to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's when you get a fuller picture of why God did that. You see, God was so intent on keeping his promises that he would say, you know, even when you, my people, even when you break covenant, I will be the one to walk through the dead carcasses. I will be the one to be cut off. That is how intent I am upon fulfilling my promise to you. I will experience the covenant curses. I will experience the judgment that comes with breaking this covenant. I will do so so that my promises would ultimately be fulfilled. And you see, David would know that God would be faithful to his promise, which is where I think he drew his confidence from. But at the same time, David had no clue, no idea. He possibly could not have any idea the lengths that God would have to go in order to keep these promises but we do because we have the entirety of the Bible and Jesus Christ has come into the world and when you fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus comes as a king in the line of David to establish the Davidic throne, the kingdom of God forever. And the only way God could keep that promise is by experiencing the covenant curses upon himself. Friends, that's what the cross is all about. Whereas the Lord was a shield for David, Jesus had no such shield Whereas the Lord was David's glory, Jesus was emptied of his glory. Whereas the Lord lifted David's head and gave him honor, Jesus' head hung in shame as he hung upon a cross. Whereas the Lord answered David when he cried aloud in this psalm, the Father turned his face away when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, in order for God to fulfill his covenant promises to David and going even back to Abraham and even uh, to us, he has to walk through the dead animal carcasses, so to speak. He has to experience the covenant curses. He has to be, uh, experience what the unfaithful party should have experienced, which is you and I. 
And so you see, if the gospel is true and if Jesus actually went through that in order to fulfill God's promises to us, then this psalm has even greater power for us than David could have possibly realized. Surely God is our shield, right? Surely God is our glory. Surely he is the lifter of our heads. Surely God is the one who sustains us if he would go so far as to die on a cross in the person of Jesus Christ in order to save us. If that is true, whom shall we fear? What can really destroy us? Though many thousands are attacking us, God is by our side. God is with us. God is in our corner. God is there to protect us. And if that is true, how much more can we sleep and experience deep, deep spiritual rest, even in spite of our circumstances, knowing what Christ has done for us? And so next time you ever have these sleepless nights, you're worried about, uh, I don't know, you're worried about your next step in life, your next job, you're worried about your finances, you're worried about your children, you're worried about, uh, I don't know, global warming, whatever it is, right? And it's keeping you up at night. Do what David did. Focus less on your attackers. Focus more on the Lord, who he is, what he has done in the person of Christ. And may that, may he give you sleep and rest. Let's pray together.